0: This is Ozarks at Large for Wednesday, August 10th, 2022. I'm Kyle Kellams. This is 91.3 KUAF. In just a moment, a proposed camping-style enterprise near Beaver Lake is a concern for some residents who live nearby. The KUAF Giving Tree is up for a third day in our lobby. It's a host site for donations of school supplies that will be distributed this weekend. Many more details at KUAF.com. Schools were a primary focus of discussion for Arkansas lawmakers yesterday. The second day of a special session of the Arkansas legislature is taking place today in Little Rock. Yesterday, the Joint Budget Committee took the first step in advancing a bill to fund a program intended to improve school safety. Senate Bill 2 would allocate $50 million to create a program schools can use to implement recommendations from the Arkansas School Safety Commission. The language of Senate Bill 2 shows the Arkansas Department of Education would be responsible for distributing money to schools. Details of what the grant programs would provide aren't spelled out yet. Republican Senator Missy Irvin of Mountain View says schools will be contacted to find out what they need to improve safety. The commission released a preliminary report last week. A final report is due in October. Senator Irvin explained to her colleagues that this is the reason why guidelines won't be created during the special session.
1: We, we want to make sure that this is intentionally spent and that we utilize it wisely, which is why we've structured the appropriation bill the way we structured it, to put it in restricted reserve and for all of that to come through ALC for further explanation and vetting.
0: Both Republican and Democratic lawmakers express concerns with the program. Democratic Senator Joyce Elliott of Little Rock says she's worried she'd be casting a vote without knowing what will be in the guidelines that will be released at a later date. I, I would
1: not like to see, for example, vote on something today, then end up funding something that says we have to have uh, people with guns in all of our schools.
0: The Joint Budget Committee Chair, Republican Jonathan Dismang of Beebe, told Elliott schools will not be forced to participate in the grant program. It will be optional. Another concern was brought up by Senator Jim Hendren, an independent from Gravit, about the allocation of funds. He, along with a few others, Said a grant program could lead to an unequal distribution of funds.
2: And I hate to see good requests not funded because they get the word late or their rec- their request comes in three months after somebody who's got somebody down here full time monitoring what's going on. So I guess my question is again, is are part of the rules and guidelines that you and Senator Dismang talking about gonna be clear that is it first come, first serve? Is it we're gonna rank and categorize how are we gonna deal with more requests? Are we or are we just gonna commit that we're gonna put in enough dollars? to fund whatever legitimate requests come.
0: Senator Dismang reiterated to lawmakers that the legislature won't be responsible for setting the rules and guidelines for the program. The Department of Education and the governor's office will handle that. The department will have to seek approval from the legislative council on the guidelines it creates. A proposed commercial glamping facility offering luxury camping called Contentment at Beaver Lake in Benton County could, once built, accommodate over 1,000 glampers. But as Ozarks at Larges' Jacqueline Froelich reports, some local residents view the park as an intrusion on their lakeside farms and homesteads.
1: Glamping, a tourist trend, is a blend of glamour and camping. Glamping offers rustic accommodations in beautifully remote ecoregions, With all the amenities. A proposed glamping park called Contentment on Beaver Lake is planned in a residential lake district. It will be built in three phases in a box canyon on a cluster of purchased vacant lots by investor group Contentment LLC. At an August 3rd Benton County planning meeting, Interim Planning Director Madison Kinzel presented site planning documents to the planning board for approval. The applicant has submitted an application for a glamping site to be comprised of 24 glamping tents, six covered wagons, five family cabins, five vacation cabins, a lodge, a waterfront pavilion, a pool, spa, and a maintenance and bathhouse. This is only the first phase of a three-phase project that eventually could accommodate as many as 1,150 glampers. The forested lakeside property is raw, so no electric water and sewer systems are in place and need to be installed, along with roads, parking, and lighting. An environmental assessment should be conducted, and the State Department of Health must approve the commercial septic system, which lies on sensitive karst topography. The U.S. Army Corps of Engineers will also vet the development After the board heard details, the public was invited to speak. First up was attorney Larry McGreddy, representing a concerned property owner adjacent to the proposed park.
3: The first major issue is the land use compatibility analysis. Just based on the phasing that has been submitted, there's 183 glamping tents, covered wagons, family cabins and vacation cabins. There also is a base camp lodge that I have no idea because the information hasn't been provided how many residents or occupants that will allow when it's used. So we don't think that a a medium density residential uh, classification fits this project. What what seems to be far more um, appropriate is either a a general commercial, uh, which is defined in the regulations as pertaining to any business, trade, industry, or other activity engaged in for profit. Clearly, this is a facility that's that's being developed for profit. Uh, it may even fit the definition of heavy commercial.
1: McGready asked the board to table the project at least until a full three-phase plan is provided to the public. Kathy Denton, who owns property nearby, said she's appalled. Why do I say I'm appalled? Before you plan a commercialized glamping lodge, etc., on 200-plus acres, You need an infrastructure that can support it. Law enforcement is lacking in this area. We don't even have enough law enforcement to handle the situations we currently have in the area, unless they are life-threatening or considered an emergency. In this addition of adventure seekers, campers will bring the likelihood of a higher crime rate, road hazards, accidents, in which we lack officers and deputies to handle. Who's going to patrol? Denton says the project will pressure local volunteer firefighters, deplete local water well supplies, and threaten the ecosystem. One small fire at this facility could soon grow and take out my house, which is just to the north of this property, and many others around it. Hank Barnes has lived in the watershed for 35 years.
4: Folks come to visit us, and we were the first house. They refer to the area as magical. I mean, the only way I even found out this hearing existed or that this development was happening was purely by accident seeing the covered wagons up the church yesterday.
1: Barnes said traffic congestion, noise, and litter will be a consequence if the park called contentment at Beaver Lake is approved.
4: And I really wish the board would take some real consideration and say no to this because as the last speaker spoke, there are some really, really important issues that need to be addressed. And for me, one of the biggest ones is uh, the Beaver Lake Water District, the affluent that may go into the lake. That's
1: significant. David and Vicki Bush, who operate a cattle farm nearby, oppose the project.
5: And what if people wander out there in the middle of the night? Okay. What if they get stomped by a cow or kicked by a horse or whatever? I mean, it's all, we're not going to see it. So what's the, what are they going to do about that? They can't sit there and watch everybody
1: 24-7. Referring to the camp concessionaire, several speakers also complained that site construction has already started on the GLAMP site without a permit. That prompted owner Gene Nichols, seated in the crowd, whom declined an interview for this report to finally step forward to speak.
2: Is there any construction going on out there now? No, there's not. I am repairing a road that washed out on my property so we can access it that's what the dump truck loads of gravel are coming in for there is four covered wagons that we had ordered nine
4: months ago at a convention that were scheduled to arrive but they are on my property they're not fixed to anything they're not hooked up but they are
2: on my property
1: that's all he had to say Planning Director Madison Kinzel explained to the board that this is the second glamping site in the county, so there is planning precedent, which is similar, she said, to commercial RV parks. But rather than approve the development, the planning board voted to table the project until the next meeting, September 7th, in order to gather more information. After the meeting, retired blueberry grower Albert Flagg agreed to talk, his spouse, Ann Yancey, owns 350 acres of farmland and forest adjacent to the proposed glamping park, and he also owns land nearby.
2: I live on Clarity Lane, which is a 150-acre farm, and we're off to one side, but we're looking right up
1: at him. Flagg lives in a quiet residential area a quarter mile across the lake. He says many of his neighbors expressed dread at the planning meeting about their treasured forested lake view being replaced by a 200-acre amusement park.
2: Speaking about how they're country people, and they have chickens and they have goats and they have all this kind of stuff on, on that side. And this project will, they feel, will in, interfere with their, with their natural way of life.
1: Albert Flagg said he would welcome a smaller campground on this site or instead a sustainable housing development. For Ozarks at Large, I'm Jacqueline Froelich.
0: Governor Asa Hutchinson says the state will experience an increase in the number of at-risk pregnancies in the coming year.
5: And that is likely because we are reducing uh, abortion in the state of Arkansas.
0: Yesterday, the governor announced initiatives in foster care and maternal health care to be implemented by the Arkansas Department of Human Services and the Arkansas Department of Health.
5: And so we have already taken many steps uh, over time to increase uh, the opportunities for adoption, for foster care, uh, for child welfare coverage as well but there's some things that we want to do more.
0: Governor Hutchinson is authorizing an increase in board payments, costing $10.2 million to traditional foster parents, which also includes relatives, and, for the first time, to provisional foster parents. Nearly 5,000 infants and children were in the state foster care system last year, with more expected as a consequence of the abortion ban. The governor says the state's Medicaid program is expanding to also meet maternal and child health care needs.
5: And for that reason, we've asked a waiver from the Biden administration so that we can affirmatively through our rural hospitals uh, provide expanded services for maternal health care through the our home Medicaid coverage.
0: Earlier this year, the state Medicaid program known as Arkansas Works was replaced by the Arkansas Health and Opportunity for Me program or our home providing low-cost or no-cost medical coverage to low-income Arkansans. Governor Hutchinson says he's requested a waiver from the Biden administration to expand maternal health care in both clinical and home settings across the state, targeting rural communities beginning next January.
5: An additional 5,000 pregnant women will be eligible for in-home visits, uh, visitation, intensive care coordinated services before and after birth. Our rural hospitals can coordinate these services, and if pregnancy, if a pregnancy is identified as high risk, then this level of intensive care would be
0: available. The goal is to discourage out-of-state abortion and to reduce infant mortality in Arkansas, which data shows is the third highest in the United States. The Arkansas Department of Health Home Visitation Program will also expand, the governor says, adding a critically needed maternal health care component. ADH has also established a pregnancy and parenting hotline designed to educate and encourage women dealing with unwanted or unexpected pregnancies. The Arkansas Department of Health is reporting 11 COVID-19 deaths in the most recent 24-hour testing period. After five consecutive days of hospitalizations going down, the Department of Health reports the number of people being treated increased by 10 in yesterday's counting. More than 1,000 new cases were reported. But as recoveries outpaced new infections, the number of active cases fell by nearly 500, with about 12,000 people feeling the effects of the virus. The
6: KUAF Giving Tree Back to School Edition returns. All this week, we're working with Second Helping NWA to gather school supplies for children in our communities that may need help getting some items. Your donations will help to fill donated backpacks that Second Helping NWA will then distribute at Grandview Apartments Sunday, August 14th during the Sunday for the Soul Backpack Giveaway event. Help fill a backpack for a child by bringing school supplies to KUAF at 9 South School in Fayetteville. For the full list of needed items, go to KUAF.com. School is just around the corner. Help make every child's school year the best it can be. Again, the item list at KUAF.com. This
0: is Ozarks at Large. Friday, I'll be hosting a conversation with Henry Rollins, the former lead singer for Black Flag, who's also an author, motivational speaker, actor, and poet. This all takes place at the Fayetteville Public Library. We'll be engaged in an hour-long conversation that begins with the title, Libraries are Punk Rock. And that will cover censorship, technology, free speech, and public libraries. Our conversation will be in the new event center at the library. Doors will open at 5 30. The line will start beginning to form at 5:15. It is a free first come first serve event that will be capped at a capacity of 650 people. You can find out much more about Friday night's event at faylib.org. An intersection of music and visual art will be explored next week at Crystal Bridges Museum of American Art in Bentonville. Singer Michael Martin Murphy And music writer and historian John Lomax III will discuss and perform contemporary Western music. The event connects to the current exhibit at Crystal Bridges' Let's Talk Art of the West. Michael Martin Murphy is the well-known singer-songwriter connected to many songs, including Wildfire. Lomax is part of a music family that has collected, recorded, and preserved thousands of songs and stories for more than a century. Many of the recordings made by the Lomaxes are contained in the Library of Congress. Yesterday, in advance of the August 18th event at Crystal Bridges, we reached John Lomax III while he was in Houston. He says his grandfather, John Lomax, became fascinated with songs at an early age.
7: He was two years old in 1869 when the family moved from Mississippi over to Meridian, Texas. And uh, so this put him in his teenage years when the height of the cattle drives were going through that part of Texas. And he just became fascinated with the songs that he'd hear at night that the cowboys would sing to keep the cattle calm or to try to anyway, because they certainly didn't want them getting restless in the middle of the night. So he would be there in this little cabin on the farm, the family farm, hearing these songs, and they just fascinated him. So after a while, he kind of would go out and hang out and write down the words and he had some method of remembering the tunes even though he never had any musical training and there certainly were no music books in the house and or any music teachers he just created some system where he could remember the melodies to the songs and he wrote the words down and uh, that started in there is no precise figure, but I like to think by the time he was fifteen, sixteen, seventeen, then that would have been when all this began, and that would have put the date in the early to mid1880s when the genesis of what actually became the first book, uh, Cowboy Songs and other Frontier Ballads in 1910. but his interest was peaked back. You know, years before that, and that's when he started writing words down and later riding around on horseback recording the songs that he could find.
0: What would he use to record when he was on horseback?
7: Started with a, with the wax cylinders, but then eventually he got one of those giant, uh, recording machines, you know the RCA Victor logo with the dog, his master's voice uh-huh. staring at this huge, this huge cone. Right. Those were the cone and the base were two separate parts. So he would have the cone strapped in the front of the horse, and then he would have the base tied to the back, and there he would go trotting around with a recording machine in two pieces on horseback. And a lot of, not a lot, but some of the cowboys were just so freaked out at this <laughs> infernal contraption that they wouldn't even sing into it. They were thinking it was some kind of bizarre devil's instrument or something. But not everyone was interested in and in, in being recorded. And of course, there wasn't any other recording much going on at that time in the right. country, so it was totally, uh, totally new.
0: Well, and then, then of course, with the Lomax family, we we moved eventually right to reels, reels, and cassettes, and and goodness knows how many songs have been captured and recorded and preserved and handed down because of this family's effort.
7: According to Roger McGuinn, uh, he said there's like over seventeen thousand, and they were not all songs; there were stories, you know, people just talking about their lives, and there was also children's play party games that they would record. So there were 17,000 separate recordings of which the vast majority were songs, but um, others were, you know, were just people talking about their lives. So there was a whole lot of documentation other than just the songs themselves. So I am
0: guessing that as you're growing up, you're privy to these songs and stories and recordings maybe all the time?
7: Well, we had a lot around the house because my father decided that he wanted to do what his father did, Mm -hmm. which was go out there and sing and talk about the whole stories about the songs and the singers and the circumstances. So he started doing this Around 1951, as a hobby, uh, he was a real estate developer uh, as a profession, but this was his passion, and that was about the same time, let's see, I would have been seven, when he started the Houston Folklore Society with, I believe, three other men, and he, or three or four other people, started the Houston Folklore Society in 1951, and their the first meetings were literally in our living room, and uh, it was—you would call it today a guitar pull sort of situation where everyone—it was very egalitarian. Whoever showed up got a chance to perform, no matter how good or bad they were. <laughs> it was—it uh, was just meant to be a social occasion for and to promote folk music and sort of continue the family's legacy with his own sort of uh, way of doing it. And he performed then up until uh, the late 60s when he had health issues, but he would do, he was on the first uh, Kerrville Folk Festival, for instance, and uh, was kind of the dean of the Texas folk singers. And through that uh, organization, which still exists, by the way, uh, the Houston Folklore and Music Society is what it's now called, but it has been in continuous operation for 71 years now. Um, but through those, through the gates of that, came people like Towns Van Zant, Steve Earl, Lucinda Williams, Nancy Griffith, KT Oslin, mm-hmm. uh, Frank Davis, who was our original duet partner. Uh, Bill Kenner, who became a very well-known session player and songwriter in Nashville, and Richard Dobson. There was just a whole generation of folkies that really got their first chance through the Folklore Society. That was their early, the first early opportunities they had to actually perform for people in public and on various concerts. Do you
0: Consider now it was inevitable that you would be someone who would manage and promote formally and informally some great singers and songwriters. Was this just going to happen by whether heredity or exposure for you?
7: I never really kind of set out to do that. Uh, I started writing about music in the uh, late 60s it sort of dawned on me when I was at University of Texas that if I wasn't going to school, I was hanging out with in clubs and hanging out with musicians and going to shows and buying albums and listening to them. So I thought, well, I need to figure out a way to be part of this and, and not have, you know, and, and get a backstage pass, so to speak. I started writing about it for the Daily Texan and writing little reviews of shows. And my dad had some blues reissues, and he gave me liner note projects for one or two of them. And this would have been in the late 60s. So that was sort of my entry point. And I wound up managing because I had known towns from the late 60s onward. And then in the 70s, when I moved to Nashville in 70. 70- I guess, I was very frustrated because I thought he was as, as an incredibly great artist and would be an enduring artist, and yet he was not very well known, and no one seemed to care. His record company had collapsed. Towns had fallen off his horse and broken his arm, so he couldn't perform, but it didn't really matter because someone had stolen his guitar, too, so he was living in a tent out in Colorado. And Guy Clark and I and Susanna sort of said, well, you ought to come over here at least, you know, it'd be warmer and you could maybe get a song cut here or there or do something. So I just decided I would be a manager and uh, jump right in and put a little tiny head in Rolling Stone, three, three lines long saying, you know, America's greatest songwriter joined the Towns Van Zandt fan club, sent $5 to my P.O. box. And I figured I'd get two or three responses, and yet I got well over 100. And they were heart-wrenching. All extraordinarily well-written and all describing incidents in their lives that Towns had affected profoundly some saying that if it weren't for his songs, they would have killed themselves and things like that. So I realized that he was touching a whole lot of nerves that, that no one really had, had understood or realized.
0: Well, so you, you wrote about music, you, you helped promote these amazing artists. At what age did you start performing yourself in front of people?
7: Well, I was intimidated. Quite frankly, by my dad, my grandfather, and my uncle, and my aunt Bess, who was, of course, uh, famous in her own right as as a songwriter. She wrote the MTA song that was a hit Kingston Trio hit, and she founded the American Folklife Festival that they have in Washington every every summer. And she was also uh, head of the. Folk Arts Division of the National Endowment for the Arts, and she and Uncle Alan both received the Presidential Medal of Arts. So, at family gatherings, here I would be trying to sing and just scared (laughs) and really not very good. And I'm still not particularly good, but I give it a lot of enthusiasm. I know the words, and I tell the stories about the songs And, uh... At some point, I think I got over my fear of being in front of crowds when I did a semester teaching at uh, Middle Tennessee State, and I realized that I could walk in a room and just start talking to people, and it would be all right. And then I guess in uh, 2017, I did my first actual performances, none of which were particularly lengthy, but I got I realized that I I could actually do that. I was doing it to support an album I put out of my dad's called folk that was made up of old recordings of his that sort of surfaced. And so he passed away in 75. So there wasn't going to be a tour unless I went out and sort of had a go at it.
0: Any of those, are any of your grandfathers wax cylinders still in existence?
7: good question whatever there is would be at the library of congress i know that not everything that the lomaxes have collected has been fully digitized yet primarily because of the massive amount of material involved in the library of congress uh, can't literally digitize every single thing they've accumulated over you know over all the years since grandfather and alan really started the whole Library of Congress Library of recorded sound that that collection their collection is still the bedrock of that whole uh, operation but uh, as far as the wax cylinders I'd have to check to see if they if they if any of them have survived over the years and you know have been preserved or transferred or if they were transferred, were the original wax cylinders still there? I don't know. That's yeah. a good question. Do
0: you think there is a a through line other than history from, say, a song like Home on the Range to a song written by Towns Van Zant that might have saved somebody's life? Do you think there's I don't know what I'm asking, maybe some sort of cosmic connection or just something that proves the power of music?
7: Well, I think There's a lot of research that has been done in music, using music in healing situations for people. And even uh, animals seem to react to music. And you have to think, for as long as there's been human life, there has been some sort of music, even just starting with the sound of the wind and the waves and thunder and lightning and stuff. And then eventually people created their own musical backgrounds and I'm unsure as to whether that started with objects that you beat on or stringed objects or things that you blew into but all of that goes back thousands of years so who knows without that maybe there wouldn't be a human race as we know it today at all if they didn't have music around as sort of a a soundtrack for their own lives.
0: John Lomax III will be with singer-songwriter Michael Martin Murphy at Crystal Bridges Museum of American Art in Bentonville Thursday, August 18th from 7 until 9 p.m. Their discussion and performance of contemporary Western music is in conjunction with the current exhibition, Let's Talk Art of the West. More details can be found at crystalbridges.org. And later this month, we're bringing the Fayetteville Roots Festival live radio broadcast back to Ozarks at Large and 91.3 KUAF for the first time since 2019. Like we did for many years before the pandemic, we'll have some of the festival performers on stage with us at the Fayetteville Public Library, playing for you there and here on the radio. A lot has happened since we could last all get together safely. That was back in August 2019. This year, for example, we'll be in the new large event center that's opened since our last live show. But some things remain the same. The music is absolutely free, and we will be live on air, so you can join us at the library on Friday, August 26th, or right where you are right now. Again, it happens Friday, August 26th. Many more details coming
6: soon. The Jones Center in downtown Springdale presents the Worst Case Scenario Survival Experience, an interactive exhibition for kids and families that puts survival skills to the test. Activities include a quicksand ball pit, climbing a wall, picking a lock, and more. Tickets at thejonescenter.net. Scott Family Amazium in Bentonville offers adventure and play every day. Families can explore more than 40 hands-on interactive experiences designed to ignite curiosity and fuel creativity. The Amazium is open every day except Tuesdays. Details on hours, upcoming programs, and more available at amazium.org. The University of
0: Arkansas's 2022 fall semester officially begins August 22nd. The new school year will see record enrollment, a housing shortage, and a new viral threat. Ozarks at Large's Daniel Caruth provides the details.
8: This fall, the University of Arkansas will welcome the largest incoming freshman class ever to its campus in Fayetteville.
4: We're lucky that we are kind of bucking the trend. You know, a lot of uh, colleges around the nation are seeing a dip in enrollment, but we're actually you know, seeing an uptick.
8: John Thomas with University Relations says the U of A expects total enrollment to top 30,000 this semester with 7,000 of those incoming freshmen, though official numbers won't be released until after classes begin on the 22nd. And while that uptick is good news for the university overall, the record numbers are
4: putting some strain on the campus. But we only have about 6,200 beds approximately um, on campus, and that's in our dorm space that we currently have. Um, obviously, when you do the math, you know, we have a little bit of an overflow.
8: So that means some 900 freshmen will have to get the on-campus experience off-campus. He says the university has worked out a deal with several nearby apartment complexes to open up their beds to students.
4: Uh, We were able to still um, provide students a housing contract and and roommates and um, and, and, uh, utility-provided living space um, close to campus on the bus route. Uh, but it's just in these apartment complexes that are right off campus. So um, it, to me it's it, it's it's just a, an additional you know benefit or um, an additional resource that we're able to uh, take a benefit from and um, be able to give freshmen you know an option, you know if they want to live in these dorms. Uh, we've also got some availability of these apartment complexes as well.
8: All of the rooms are fully furnished and are paid under a university housing contract, so the same as for students living in dorms. Thomas also says students will have an on-site resident advisor. The four complexes include the View on Stadium Drive, Ozark Villas on Beechwood Avenue, the Marshall on Razorback Road, and the Locale off of Garland Avenue. Thomas says the university first offered these off-campus partnerships last year, when they needed more housing options for some upperclassmen. He says in the wake of this record enrollment, the university is looking into expanding housing for the
4: future. Some of our um, leadership has been talking with the city and figuring out you know, some planning for the future and trying to figure out where some extra space could be had. Um, but that's still, uh, that, that still uh, uh, remains to be seen as to how exactly we can do that and our enrollment that you know, we're seeing this year. We, we don't know if it's going to continue to go up. And that hesitation comes as other
8: universities across Arkansas are seeing a decline. A study from the National Student Clearinghouse showed that undergraduate enrollment in Arkansas declined by more than 14 percent from 2019 to 2022. Thomas says the growth of the U of A is seeing likely is related to a holdover from the COVID-19 pandemic when many students waited for when they could return to in-person classes.
4: And um, I think that's still the effect of the pandemic where we're seeing students that want to have that college experience and they want to be on campus and be in person and they, they want to have what they missed, essentially.
8: And speaking of the COVID-19 pandemic, that mass of students making their way to Fayetteville will likely see little evidence of pandemic restrictions when they step foot on campus. Most of those policies, like mandatory masking, testing, and contact tracing, were dropped last semester when virus cases slowed, Still, Thomas does say the university is prepared to reinforce restrictions if an outbreak occurs.
4: Um, You know, and it's important to remember that the spread of COVID-19 is obviously still viable. It can still be, um, you know, transmitted. But we know after two years of this that it can be mitigated just by wearing a mask if you feel like it's necessary or, um, you know, frequently cleaning areas and washing your hands and, Trying to avoid constant contact or close contact with folks that may be sick, and um, staying home if you're sick, or going to see a doctor, or, or getting vaccinated. Uh, we know all those things can help mitigate the spread, and and um, you know we're still prepared for that. We know it's still out there, so we've uh, we've actually invested in uh, in providing free masks for anyone that wants them. We have them available uh, on campus throughout and in our union and. Um, the university is still doing routine cleaning of frequently touched areas and disinfecting, and um, you know, all those things that we've been doing for the last two years., uh, we're going to continue to do this year. So um, we, we think that we're we're more than prepared for for any type of uh, for any, any issue that might come up with that.
8: Students who do test positive are still required to quarantine for at least five days according to the guidelines set by the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention. Masks are encouraged indoors, but not required, and students are not required to be vaccinated. However, vaccines are available for students through the Pat Walker Health Center.
4: Um, They have the the newest vaccine available right now that's been approved, the Novavax vaccine, um, but they also have the Pfizer and the Moderna vaccines as well. So, um, you know, all those resources are here for everyone to use, and we hope that everyone will take advantage of them.
8: And while Thomas says over the last two years, campus staff and students have learned how to live with the coronavirus, there is the potential of another threat emerging. This summer, an outbreak of monkeypox has crept across the country, with the White House declaring it a public health emergency last week. As of Tuesday, Arkansas had 12 confirmed cases of the virus.
4: Any type of health um, issue is going to be a concern for, for our campus, especially something like monkeypox that we're starting to see a little bit more of a spread of across our country. And the, the Pat Walker Health Center is, is um, you know, our health providers and our staff have been monitoring monkeypox really from the beginning once we started to see that uh, and gathering information that they receive from the CDC and the Department of Health and, um, to prepare for this semester. Um, And and they're still here to provide that information for our community if they have questions. Unlike COVID-19,
8: however, monkeypox is spread by close physical contact rather than through air
4: particles. And it's not a new or unknown illness. Um, You know, monkeypox is a treatable um, illness. And it's something that those who have been vaccinated from smallpox already should have protection from. Um, For those that aren't vaccinated for smallpox, um, we're recommending that they pay attention to any type of new or unexplained rashes that they have themselves or their partner may notice, and to see a medical provider if they experience symptoms. Um, and so, if if you know, that's that's one of the things that, that um, you know we just ask people to watch out for.
8: But while vaccines and treatments for monkeypox are available, the supply in
4: Arkansas is limited. So the, P, the Pat Walker Health Center can perform a monkeypox virus test on a patient to determine if they're infected with the virus. Um, you know, and Washington County Health uh, also offers testing for suspected monkeypox. They're another good resource in our area pre- and post-exposure vaccinations available, um, those are uh, being facilitated through our state health department. So um, Pat Walker the, itself doesn't have a vaccine for that, but um, we have the resources and we have the information that we can provide to make sure if, if you need it, that you, that f- folks can go get that, where, where in town they can go get those. For more information on
8: exact health policies for the University of Arkansas, visit health.uark.edu.
0: For Ozarks at Large... I'm Daniel Caruth. Daniel Caruth's reporting originates in the Karen Taha News Studio. And each weekday morning in that same studio, Daniel delivers newscasts regarding the events and people of our region and state. You can hear those morning newscasts inside Morning Edition every Monday through Friday at 530 and 730 a.m.
9: Over the last year, I have discovered the work that helps me to do something that I've been dreaming about doing in my professional career for quite some time, and that is breaking down the walls of the ivory tower and revealing what really goes on in the minds and thinkings of academics in their research labs, in the different disciplines, and in the classrooms. It sounds a little bit like Real Housewife Meets Academia, but that is what KUAF has helped me to accomplish with my podcast, On Discipline. I am Karee Banton, the host of On Discipline. I love being a part of KUAF because I can count on hearing quality news from diverse populations from around the world. In-depth and incisive analysis of major stories and headlines. And I get to learn about and from people like myself, academics. Artists, legal experts, economists, storytellers, and other people doing cutting-edge work. By contributing to KUAF, it helps people like me to bring you the kinds of quality content you hear on Undiscipline. On Thank you, KUAF listeners. What would I do without your support?
0: This is... Ozarks at large. The Black Action Collective is seeking proposals for its 2022 Unite Against Racism conference that will take place in October. The theme is creating a culture of belonging, closing the disparities in our community. The collective is seeking proposals that incorporate interactive activities for engaging presentations with subject matter experts on race, equity, diversity, and inclusion. Presentations may include speaker presentations with Q&A, panel discussion with question-and-answer periods, case studies, learning activities, and more. Proposals are due by Friday. More information can be found at BACNWA.org. If you think pickling has to be cucumbers and pickling has to have a steaming kitchen with boiling water, Ozark Folkways in Winslow is ready to let you know it doesn't have to be cucumbers and a hot kitchen. They're going to host Heather from Ozark Natural Foods for a session in small batch pickling Saturday morning. Participants will make an array of pickles, including pickled grape tomatoes, pickled grapes, pickled turnips, pickled charred stems, pickled red onions, and yes, the classic cucumber pickle. After this class, you'll be able to take your pickling knowledge to pickle anything and everything that might come out of your garden or from your farmer's market hall. Sponsorship from Ozark Natural Foods for this session means the workshop fee is only $30. This is Saturday morning at 10 a.m. Registration and more information available at OzarkFolkways.com. And if you're going to go back to school, you might as well have a party before that, right? That is the idea in Van Buren on Saturday. Downtown merchants in Van Buren are making Back to School the theme for their monthly second Saturday shopping event. There will be food trucks. There will be live music face painting from 10 until 6 Saturday in Old Town Van Buren. This is Ozarks at Large for Wednesday, August 10th, 2022. Thanks, as always, for being with us. We're giving our last word today to Laird McIntosh. He's the actor portraying Henry Higgins in the national touring production of My Fair Lady that's on stage at Walton Art Center through this weekend. When we aired our initial conversation with him last week, we didn't have time for the last three questions I asked him. A list I admitted to him consisted of three Possibly silly questions, including: Is it as fun to sing the rain in Spain every night as those of us in the audience suspect it may be? Oh, it's
2: super fun! I have to
0: honestly say
2: that really is. A, in fact, if you were going to ask me what one of my favorite numbers in the show is, that that's the one I would say, because we get to genuinely, um, you know, um, Shireen and Kevin and I, um, Eliza Doolittle and Pickering, respectively um, you know, really get to kind of cut loose in that number. And, um, we can genuinely joke around a little bit with each other in, in that, during that dance scene. And it, it just, you know, is beautifully dovetails into what we're actually, the story that we're actually telling. And so we just have a, a wonderful time and it's such a great moment in the show because the audience. They know the melody of the rain in Spain, stays mainly in the plain. You know, they know that melody, but they don't know that's coming. Um, And uh, when Eliza, it's the moment where she finally gets the dialect right. Um, And it's a beautiful moment for the audience. Um, Just the way it's structured um, is a great piece of theater storytelling. So, yeah, that's a really fun one.
0: All right, potentially silly question number two. Are you the only person who can have a resume that says you've been in productions with both Paul Stanley from Kiss and Martin Short? Maybe,
2: yes. (laughs) Yeah, maybe. That's right. I I did a uh, made-for-TV movie with Martin Short, and when I say I did a made-for-TV movie, I mean I had a scene that I was in that he was in. Um, So I got to share a, a line with him. Um, Paul Stanley from Kiss, right, played the Phantom up in Toronto when I was Rowell in the show, so I worked really closely with him and have kept in touch with him, and he is a super nice guy and uh, was wonderful to work with, so that was a really fun experience, you know, for me and for the whole cast up in Phantom. Um, And uh, yes, it is possible that um, I might be the only person who's (laughs) who's worked with both of them.
0: Uh, Potentially silly question number three. You're from Calgary, which is one of my favorite cities in the world. And one of the reasons is because Calgary, more than any other city I've ever visited, understands crosswalks and crosswalk etiquette. You wait for the signal, Mm -hmm. then you go in the street. It's very orderly. And I wonder if that's something that people from Calgary take with them everywhere. I'm afraid it isn't. Uh.
2: Um, I, I I I would like to say that it is, but I I have had I I know for a fact that I I bring now a kind of New York state of mind of being like a notorious jaywalker. Um, so I probably take my life in my hands um, when I shouldn't. But it's funny that you say that because I I was not aware that that was one of the um, characteristics of Calgary, Alberta. But that's a great thing that's a great thing to know. And, um, it is a great city. Um, I thought you were going to say something about the Rocky mountains, but, (laughs) but yeah, I I never knew that. That's really cool. You're going to make me, I'm going to be more careful though. Now just so that I can represent Calgary.
0: That question may say more about me than anything else that I was noticing crosswalk etiquette in one of the most beautiful places on the planet. But
2: well, crosswalk etiquette is something that we should be, you know, we should have a sense of etiquette about, and, you know, since it does also involve, like, taking your life into your own hands. So, so it's a good reminder, and I'm, I'm glad you told me that that was a, a Calgary thing.
0: Actor and great sport, Laird McIntosh, is Professor Henry Higgins in the national touring production of My Fair Lady. It's on stage at Walton Arts Center in downtown Fayetteville through Sunday afternoon. You can learn more at waltonartcenter.org. And you can hear Laird McIntosh discuss subjects like preparing for the role of Henry Higgins and thinking of the musical in 21st century terms from our conversation that originally aired on our show last week just by searching ozarksatlarge.com.
6: Ozarks at Large is underwritten in part by the Walton Family Charitable Support Foundation. When caring for a seriously ill loved one, the journey shouldn't be taken alone. Circle of Life Hospice can help. Services are covered by Medicare, Medicaid, and private insurance. No one is turned away based on an inability to pay. 750-6632 or nwacircleoflife.com for information. This is
0: 91.3 KUAF, Fayetteville, Fort Smith, Rogers, and Lincoln. KUAF is a listener-supported service of the School of Journalism and Strategic Media at the University of Arkansas. Contributors today included Jacqueline Froelich and Daniel Carruth. Timothy Dennis produced today's show. Major legislative reporting assistance today from the hardworking news staff at KUAR Public Radio in Little Rock. More voices from the Ozarks, Arkansas and beyond tomorrow at noon and 7 p.m., From the Carver Center for Public Radio, I'm Kyle Kellens. We're going to leave you with the Northwest Arkansas Jazz Society All-Stars Youth Ensemble performing quintessence. The Jazz All-Stars Youth Ensemble Reunion Jam with former and current members is tomorrow night, beginning at 6 at Roots HQ on the Fayetteville Square. Admission is free. Thanks for being with us.